Welcome back to another episode of the SIDCast. My name is Sid Finkelstein. I'm a professor at Dartmouth College, and I've created this thing called the, the SIDCast. It's a podcast where you get to learn about all kinds of fascinating people, maybe people you never heard of, but you wish you did. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty lucky in the sense I live in this small college town, Hanover, New Hampshire, little idyllic uh, little town, and I'm a professor here in the college, and uh, I, have a, I, have a, I have a great job. I'm going to admit it. I'm going to put it right out there. I, I have a pretty, pretty good job. Uh, but, you know, our guest, our guest today probably would say the same thing, that he's got a great job, but, boy, I have to wonder about it sometimes. Our guest today is Phil Hanlon, and Phil is the president of Dartmouth College. I guess you could call him my, my boss, but here's one of the problems with being the president of a university when you have all kinds of tenured faculty members like me floating around. Uh, yeah, he's my boss, and yeah, he's going to be listening to everything I'm about to say, so i got to watch out. But you know what? be pretty tough to fire me. Uh, I am, um, you know, I'm pretty independent, and tenure provides that type of protection. Imagine you got a job where you're a CEO, you're a president, you're, you're managing a team where... Yeah, you don't actually have a lot of control over the key resources, the key assets that uh, that you work with. In this case, uh, in this case, faculty members. Add in something else that's kind of weird. I've always wondered about higher education. And this is especially true for you know some of the better known schools. But you know, you could take the top one hundred schools probably in America, and 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 probably a lot more all over the world. And and you have this kind of weird thing that's going on, which is uh, people are lined up to get in. They're lined up to, to, to buy your product, to go to your school, to, to get an education from your university. And that's pretty good, except that you don't take all those customers. You only take a certain percentage. You know, maybe you take 6%, 8%, 10%, 25%. I mean, that's weird, right? You have everyone wants to buy it. You take only a small number of them, and you give them the right to buy your product, and then you discount the price to them. Now, you don't have to be a big-shot economist to figure out that's a very weird business model. But that is the business model of higher education. And uh, it makes for some really kind of complicated leadership challenges and business challenges. And we see it, uh, you know, we see it today. Higher ed's been, well, it's been under attack a lot from, for all sorts of reasons, especially the cost of education. And uh, it just goes up and up. It's gone up at a, at a pace much faster than, uh, than inflation. And going to a four-year college now could cost... Uh, could cost you know seventy five, eighty, eighty five thousand dollars a year when you when you go all in for room and board and um, maybe going home to see your parents once a year if you're lucky. Uh, so those costs are really really high. And then you know when you graduate, don't you want to get a job? And that's another issue. Uh, I'm a big fan of the liberal arts as a core a core philosophy, a core set of ideas that help people live a better life, a higher quality life. It teaches you, liberal arts teaches you how to read, how to write, how to think, how to ask the right questions. Absolutely critical, but it doesn't necessarily give you any any real job skills. And um, we're, uh, we're in an unbelievably good economy, and so we're talking, uh, uh, we don't really have a big problem right now uh, in this respect, but it has been in the past, and when the economy goes through its typical cyclicality and we get to a trough, I think it'll be another problem again with, uh, with kids getting jobs. And, you know, the other thing that's going on across many schools of higher education, and this is, I shouldn't say just schools of higher education, but every organization, uh, every institution, every industry is, is issues around sexual harassment or, or worse. And that's certainly uh, something that uh, uh, higher ed is grappling with. Uh, it's certainly something that, um, uh, well, every, every organization, as I said, is grappling with. And we'll, uh, we'll talk to Phil Hanlon, the president of Dartmouth College, about, about that as well. Um, one other thing I want to I just uh, uh, say about Phil uh, that I think is really interesting you know, you never could tell where you where you end up because this is a this is a guy that uh, he grew up in this small mining town um, in uh, upstate New York, and uh, you know he was one of the very very few people to even go to college. He goes to college, actually Dartmouth, as it turns out, and uh, the courses he takes. Um, in, in, in a subject he really thought he'd love. He hates those courses. Eventually, those, that subject turns out to be where he makes his specialization and eventually gets a PhD in that area. So, you know, you sometimes, sometimes you, can't, you can't tell what's going to happen. Uh, so, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt, not pushing people. I'm talking about young people now to kind of decide, 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 which, by the way, talking about education, when you go to other countries in the world, especially Europe, 
to some extent Asia as well, people have to almost determine their lives at the age of 17 or 18 by deciding what they want to specialize in. They want to specialize in law, in, in medicine, in business, what have you. And how, how could you possibly know um, how could you possibly know? Which is, by the way, another reason why a liberal arts education gives you a big upside. It gives you a chance to start to learn and explore and think about some of the things you want to do. So we're going to have a, a great conversation. Uh, let's open the door and bring, uh, bring Phil Hanlon in here, president of Dartmouth College, and talk about uh, all things Dartmouth and all things Phil Hanlon. Welcome, Phil Hanlon. Thank you, Seth. It's great to uh, have you with us on, on the podcast. And uh, so we're both in the same business, uh, the business of universities. And you're running the Dartmouth College as the president. I'm a faculty member. Um, and I feel like, you know, a lot of people, they understand how Amazon makes money, how they do things. They, they might understand how, you know, and other, other organizations might operate. But universities are almost like a, like a black box. It's, a, it's kind of a weird business. And I thought... Wouldn't it be interesting if we could decipher this thing for the average person? And actually, for my benefit, too, there's some things we do I don't completely get either. Uh, and, and so uh, let's, let's start with something really basic, for example. So how does somebody become president? Who hired you in the first place? So thanks, Sid. Um, interesting set of questions. And uh, indeed, universities are very mysterious uh, mm-hmm. enterprises. So uh, as president, you're hired by the board of trustees, by the governing board of the institution. And uh, they are the one body that's charged with the long-term relevance of the institution. And so that makes their decision-making really quite different than anything else that goes on at the, uh, at the institution. So they're, they're, they have fiduciary responsibility? They have fiduciary responsibility, and uh, their considerations tend to be long-term. And everyone right. else, you know, falls into, typically falls into short-term thinking. So would you say that the uh, board of trustees would represent your boss? They do indeed. They do indeed. indeed. <laughs> indeed. Absolutely. You wouldn't just yeah. say it. They do indeed. They do indeed. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, let's start with first principles. Uh, and you'll have to excuse the way I frame this. How does a university make money? Okay. So uh, it's a nonprofit, of course, so there is there is no profit at the end of the day. But our revenue streams uh, for today's uh, U.S. universities tend to come in four four buckets. One is uh, our tuition, and uh, that tends to be heavily discounted through financial aid. Uh, second is uh, philanthropy, so gifts and endowment income. Uh, third is sponsored research funding, which comes um, largely from the federal government, but also from foundations and corporations. Mm-hmm. And then there's, uh, there's other income, which comes from uh, probably non-degree programs, typically, that uh, universities right. mount. Yeah. And so yeah. that together is the revenue stream. And so people often ask why it costs so much, right, for their kids to go to school. Right. What, what do you tell them? Well... The, uh, I think the model of residential higher education is incredibly expensive. It's uh, not only supporting the great academic enterprise uh, and allowing the faculty to do their teaching and research uh, and supporting students and their learning, um, but we're actually running, um, you know, residences. We're running hotels and we're running <laughs> dining. And, uh, right. you know, uh, you put all that together and it, it is incredibly costly. And um, is that something that most uh, parents would be, would be students, they, they, get, they get that, they understand that? Because the price tag, well, what does it cost now at Dartmouth? Or, so like the, full, uh, full the price? sticker price is about 71000 71000 for undergraduates. And that includes room and board? That includes room and board, yeah. and that's all in. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it is a little hard to imagine how it could cost that much, but uh, when you do put all the pieces together, um, including the support services for students, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, for our undergraduates, we have a 97% completion rate, mm-hmm. and so we offer uh, students an enormous amount of support um, because it's a challenging academic environment. Right, right. And it's not like customer satisfaction, so to speak, is low. It's off the charts high. That's right, um, yeah. Uh, even, even with that, uh, that sticker price. 
Um, and what about what about endowments? So this is another critique you sometimes read about, right? Why why are universities stockpiling these multi-billion-dollar endowments? Why aren't they using more of them to lower tuition costs? Well, um, you know, I, I wouldn't. I would take issue with the word stockpiling. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of framing <coughs> you know, it the way I've heard the critiques. Right, right. So um, they are growing a lot, but. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, through through great investment uh, activity, yeah. they do. Uh, you know, they they support uh, not only financial aid. So financial aid is the largest expenditure out of our endowment flow, um, and but they also uh, support the kind of learning environment that is really special at a place mm -hmm. like Dartmouth or Harvard or or Yale. Right. So it's, it's it doesn't only go to tuition, although these are kind of fungible. Cash is fungible, yeah. and you, you can put it in different places. That is true. Um, one of the things that um, is uh, is puzzling uh, about about this industry, especially when you get to places like Dartmouth, it's it's kind of funny because uh, the demand for our product is gigantic, and it we is. only allow what is it one out of ten? Is that yeah? The? We we uh, admitted about eight and a half percent of the applicants last eight year. Eight and a half, so we're like twelve, one yeah. out of twelve. Right. We. we we allow one out of 12 would-be customers to buy. Right. But yet we discount heavily to a, what percentage of students get some type of financial About aid? 50% of our undergraduates so financial aid. Half of aid. our students. Now that's a model you don't see in any other business, I know, right? it's true. And, <laughs> and the average award is about 50,000. The uh, average is 50,000. The average wow. is 50,000. So uh, it is heavily discounted. So the sticker price is, does not represent really the, uh, yeah. Yeah. the, the net price. Um, but yeah, indeed, let me talk about the cost again, because you know you, you had touched on the cost. Yeah. And uh, it is the case that if you look at uh, higher ed in the US, the uh, average increase in sticker price um, has gone up about two to three percent above any reasonable index of inflation for 40 years in a row, something yeah. like that. Mm. And so we find ourselves in the situation where the average sticker price at 71000 is above the median household income in the country. And so um, why is that? Why, what, how do you account for that? Mm. And uh, about 1% of that uh, amount above inflation is really due to financial aid, need-based financial aid. So it's really that the, the, net, the increase in net tuition has gone up one to two percent above inflation, mm -hmm. but what accounts for that? And uh, in my mind, it's the way that we handle innovation. So we are the ultimate innovation uh, industry. We need to teach new subjects. We need right. to teach in new ways. We need to do new kinds of research. Right. Often, these need new new kinds of facilities. And uh, we have, for uh, many decades, fallen into the habit of innovating by addition rather than substitution. So. Unlike an, a household or, mm -hmm. or a business would say, okay, if I want to do this cool new thing, mm -hmm. then I'm going to figure out what's my least effective spend. I'm going to stop doing that mm -hmm. and put the money to yeah, do the cool. Yeah, because you have a budget. Yeah, <laughs> you have a budget. So have well, we've, we've had this luxury of saying, no, we're just going to add it to the sticker price and right. uh, have our cake and eat it too to some mm -hmm. extent. Mm -hmm. uh, so one thing we've done since I arrived here is we have actually required – all of our units, all of our major units, um, the Tuck School, but also Arts and Sciences yep. and Facilities and Operations, uh, Dean of the College, and so on. Every year they have to identify 1.5% of their spend that they're going to stop doing explicitly. Stop doing. They're going to stop doing, and then they're going to have, they need to say what, what innovation they're going to put that into or what new priority they're going to put that money into. And yeah, that's really interesting. And that 1.5%, so uh, is that earmarked to specific projects or it's too it, it's not that specific it's overall budget you just it's overall budget right yeah, yeah. and so uh, it could be overhead it could be you know staff yep. members could be a lot of things whatever ways they can find to operate more efficiently right or, um, the result has been that we've had the lowest five-year percent increase in tuition since the 1950s over the last five years. And that's Dartmouth over time. That's Dartmouth over time. And right. better than uh, peer schools? Uh, yes, I think so, mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. We, in fact, if you look at our peer set, um, which is the Ivy Plus group, essentially, yes. 
Um, we have gone from the second most expensive in the peer set to the seventh most expensive. So there, I mean, the, there's a metric to, to back yeah. that up. I mean, it's not that it's stopped dramatically. It's still a very, very big sticker price. But the, to me, the thing is, the, it's the sticker. Yeah. And, and the, the amount of money that we provide to support students who need it uh, is, is really, to me, that's one of the most powerful things a university could do. And I'm, uh, and gets the kind of back to the student side of this. I'm I'm I'm, I'm wondering: uh, is there a statistic that says you know what percentage of our students, first members of their family, have ever been to college? Yes, we we track where, that where, every where, year. Where and are we at on that? It's it's uh, in our admitted class. It's around fifteen percent. Fifteen percent of yeah. all of the admitted students are first have ne- generation. Have never been to university. Uh, yeah. So I mean, that is just such a that's a life that's a that's a personal change as a life changer, but it could be for a whole family as well. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, those students add a great deal to our campus. We also have um, mm-hmm. a program to support them when they come in, mm-hmm. uh, specifically for first-generation students. Um, and as I said, um, we end up with a 97% completion rate, so uh, almost all of them finish but you know to be to 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 be fair it's not it's not a completely equal playing field for wealthy kids from wealthier families in fact i shouldn't say it's not exactly it's not an equal playing field for all sorts of reasons including um even if we gave a hundred percent tuition relief you still need some money to work and live and and uh, and so you're working, you might be more likely to work part-time, which, by the way, is a, is a plus, not a minus, mm-hmm. but it does, you know, there's only 24 hours in, in, in a day. Uh, and there are other kids that, you know, come from wealthier families, and they don't have to do that. Absolutely. Um, and I sort I, I of remember that from my own Dartmouth experience. You know, I, I came from a, a small rural village. Um, I had to work from the very day I started at Dartmouth. Um, I also felt like uh, many of my peers who had been to elite prep schools really had a much deeper understanding of the world than I did coming in the door. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it doesn't mean you can't be successful, but it is a different experience. Has there been a change th- since the time you were here? You were here in, it was the late 70s? I was here in the mid seventies. The mid seventies. Yeah, right, right. So um, here, meaning Hanover and Hampshire, right. Dartmouth College, as a student, uh, has has it changed much with respect to the makeup of the student body? So today, it's was it about fifteen percent legacy, or is it a little less? Maybe it's yeah, it's about fifteen percent legacy at this point. Um, we admit about eight percent of our admits are legacy students, but they yield at a much higher rate than other uh, students. Okay, so, so the matriculating class is about 15%. About 15%. Um, the student body, uh, coming back here, that was the biggest change I noted, mm-hmm. was that uh, when I was here, it was the second year of co-education, and so uh, yes. it was mostly white guys when right. I was here. Mm-hmm. And today, it's, uh, it's 50 uh, 50-50 gender-wise, but also about 40% of our undergraduates are students of color. And it's a much richer, more vibrant, more robust right. environment. Right. So I, I, I've had this pet theory that's based on no data whatsoever. So I'm probably wrong. But we have 50-50 in many gender balance, mm-hmm. which many schools have. Um, but in high school, I think girls do better than boys. There's, a- and uh, if that's true, there's a form of, of, of reverse discrimination going on. That we should have more women than men. You well, know what I'm saying? Uh, it's not based on data exactly, but it's just an inclination. Yeah, so here. the thing you have to be careful of is um, if you admitted based only on grades, mm-hmm. then that would be true. But, of mm-hmm. course, we're, we're shaping the clay class based on many things, right. not just grades, right. not just test scores, but also um, intrinsic factors like uh, leadership ability, resilience, uh, ability to overcome challenges. So there's right. lots of things which go into shaping the class. Right. Although we could say that women have just as many of those factors as men uh, in terms of resilience or athletic um, um, experiences, leadership experiences. Um, um, it just, it's just something I think about. You know, we talk about discrimination. It's kind of a bad word. I know as a university president, you don't like that word. <laughs> but at Harvard now, they're dealing with a big court case on uh, I guess it's discrimination against Asian American applicants. That's the allegation. Yes, it's the allegation. Right. Do you have a point of view about that, one way or the other? Well, I, you know, I don't know enough about 
the Harvard sure. admissions uh, practices to have an opinion on the, that specific issue. But um, you know what I what I do have an opinion on is that diversity is of great value yeah. to all students and and to our actual. Uh, Academic community overall, and the work that we do, and so uh, it's it's an incredibly valuable thing. Um, affirmative action has been, uh, you know, looking at race and and gender and ethnicity amongst one mm -hmm. of many factors has helped us build a diverse class, um, and so I think that's been valuable in that regard. Right, right, and so do, do you find like today, twenty nineteen, let's say you get challenged by prospective parents or others in the community about affirmative action because it is under attack in some states in this country. Yeah, I, I think uh, as a practice, uh, it is definitely under attack by some people. And, and you're right, some states have outlawed it. Um, California has outlawed it. Michigan has outlawed it. Texas has outlawed mm -hmm. it. Oregon has outlawed it. Mm -hmm. um, I think that... I don't. I don't hear much challenge to the notion of the value of diversity. Right. And so then the real question is, can you achieve it? Uh, how do you achieve it? How do you achieve it in right. a in a fair in a fair manner? Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, the research on diversity is overwhelming. How positive? How many things it adds? Even in in businesses, diversity of a team <laughs> measured in all sorts of ways. Diverse teams make better decisions on average. Yeah. And so why wouldn't we want to do that in, right. in, in school? Right. But if it means that uh, we're, we're bringing in student X, um, in the, and this is the, I, I, don't, I don't buy it, but this is the critique that you've heard a million times. We're bringing in student X that happens to be that from this minority group or this type or whatever it is. That, that's somebody from the majority that might have higher grades or higher, not just grades to your point, but mm -hmm. a stronger case and doesn't get in. Yeah, I, that, is, that is the assertion by some people. Um, and again, uh, you know, we, we, I think what we have a strong opinion on is the value of diversity. And, um, you know, Scott Page's work, I don't know if you've read any of Scott Page's books. Okay, so there's, Scott Page is a uh, scholar at University of Michigan. He uh, wrote one book called The Difference. Um, and uh, it actually is interesting because it, it compiles the decades of research Mm -hmm. that, uh, mm -hmm. So if you want to find it all in one place, that's, right. a, that's a good source. Okay, that's a good, uh, that's a good tip. Um, I have another question about kind of the, the, the business of why universities operate the way they do. Yeah. In America, universities are um, typically four-year, other than community college, mm -hmm. four years. And so many of our students come in so much more qualified than, than it was in the past with all these advanced placement AP courses. And I think some universities let uh, kids opt out and, and actually not have to take the full number of credits. And in other words, you could finish in three years. And, and so why, why, why are we not doing that? Why are we not thinking about that some more? Well, uh, we did do that. And uh, I think uh, around 2012, it was before I was here, yep. the, the arts and sciences faculty um, decided that, uh, in fact, they were going to discontinue the practice of giving graduation credit um, for high school classes, uh, they still give placement credit. So in other words, you don't have to, if you, if you can test out of um, right. they might not take the intro math, yeah, you know, right. but you don't get graduation credit. Um, I think they feel that uh, what we have to offer here is unique and compelling. It's really not comparable to what students get in high school. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they note that uh, we offer something like 2,000 undergraduate courses. Wow. Any student gets to pick only 35 of them mm -hmm. during their during their career. So um, there is plenty to learn uh, throughout uh, your time. In, in in fact, it would be it would be great to be in university forever. Kind of like you right. and I have done that. Right, right. <laughs> like no, creating a career. Yeah, no, it, it but, is. You know, when you're young, the learning and, part and, is is awesome. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, right, yeah. That's right. But you know, you bring up a, a an interesting um, point, which is a concern. Among some people, not mm -hmm. not so much in the elite sector of higher ed, but in other sectors of yep. higher ed, um, that the um, higher ed has had, again, the luxury of saying a degree is a four-year time commitment. Yep. Um, and there are sectors who worry that's going to get unbundled. And employers are going to say, I don't care about four years. Mm -hmm. I care that you've had these five courses. Mm -hmm. And that's... 
that's all I care about. Um, when universities were the only supplier, that was uh, something we could control right. as an industry. But now there's MOOCs and there's other ways to actually take individual courses. And so there is great concern among some people that um, higher ed will become unbundled in the sense that the right. kinds of courses you need to complete a degree will just be separated and you can take only bits and pieces. And the thing that higher ed is, has been able to do um, that so far hasn't been competed away is the certification. And it's not the only thing because there's a network and there's an experience, especially right. a place like Dartmouth. But we certify somebody and it's a certification <laughs> that comes with gigantic legitimacy. Anyone can certify anyone. Yeah. You just do it. You say, okay, you know, Sid's going to certify you as a great, uh, that you can do this and this and this, but no one's going to buy, buy that. Now, Google is thinking or maybe already has started doing that. We have lynda.com and LinkedIn. So there are, there are some movements among highly reputable, gigantic organizations to even take over the certification process of the, of the value chain, if you will. Right. And uh, I, th I think that... There probably is great change coming to higher ed overall. Mm -hmm. um, we are not seeing it at our end of the se our sector of higher ed. And is, that, is that because we're kind of playing in the elite? Is it because the experience is so special here? The network is so powerful? Yeah. Or it's some combination? Or is there something else? I think, uh, you know, it's, it's the power of the network. It's the... Um, it is the belief, I think, that the experience is special, but the selectivity you were just talking about mm -hmm. is real. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you, uh, if you graduate from Dartmouth, you applied and were one of only 8.5% who were admitted. Mm -hmm. um, doesn't mean you're the only smart person in the world, but it means you're probably a smart person. Right, yeah. right. And it turns out that when you put a bunch of smart people together, something kind of magical. Yeah, happen. that's what we believe, right? And and you know, it is it is interesting that um, the model of higher education, um, where you have uh, you know smart faculty instructing smart students, um, has been around for you know since nine hundred or a <laughs> thousand or something like that. Right. Uh, right. And I don't, I, I don't think there's any business that's been around for that many years. Well, maybe religion, but... Uh, religion <laughs> that, has, yeah. Right, right but that's, that, that's about it. Yeah. Because today everyone talks about disruption, digital disruption. And, of course, yeah. in higher ed, that, that's not a... I mean, there's a real thing going on. Um, and, and there's a lot of online education. You mentioned uh, MOOCs yeah. uh, and TED Talks. I think about schools that maybe are um, regional and don't necessarily have the same... Uh, prestige level, uh, network opportunity, and experience, uh, which are difficult to replicate. And I, and, and I think, well, they're going to take a class from, let's say, a math professor, mm -hmm. and could be an extremely competent math professor and an and effective teacher. But you can go online in a MOOC and maybe get an MIT math professor, happens to be a Nobel Prize winner, delivering a class effectively as well. How do you... How can you possibly compete? To, and the price tag is either zero or, or minuscule. Right. Uh, so I, I think you're absolutely right that um, there, for institutions who, where the experience they offer is essentially sit in a room and someone's going to talk to you, mm -hmm. um, that they, they've got a real challenge ahead of them. Um, I do think that you, something you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. is there is a magic that happens when you create a community of learners, a right. tight community of learners. Right. Um, and I think, you know, the reason you see whatever it is, 7% completion rates on MOOCs is because it is really hard to be a learner when you're not embedded in a community of learners. Yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're on your own. And, and it's true, you're not in part of that community of learners, although, you know, MOOCs sometimes do try to... They, they try to do that. Some of them try yeah. to do that. And it's, you know, of the distance learning um, technologies, yep. MOOCs is a, definitely a step forward from the prior ones. Right. No doubt about right. it. You know, uh, an analogy I think about is the music business. Hmm. So you don't make much money selling C well, CDs. Do we even say CDs? Let's say songs. You download <laughs> your songs. Uh, yeah. There's there's not a lot of money in it. You know, Spotify pays a fraction of a fraction of a penny to a uh, to a performer. But there's big money in performance, um, and that's why companies like Live Nation have become really big. Yeah. And so you go to the show, the perform, and you pay now. I mean, tickets can be 100, 200, and much much higher. Um, and, and what you're getting is an experience, 
you're not just getting the content, so to speak. Right. And I think, and let me ask you this, this question, I think uh, for universities, including us at, at, at Dartmouth, um, we have to give students a reason to show up and be in the classroom. And part of that is, is this, I'm going to say performance, but not as an entertainer necessarily, or, an exper or experience, yeah. that I think we have to do that, which puts a premium on, on great teaching, but also a premium on understanding how people learn, this community that you're talking about. So yeah. I'm kind of going in a few different directions, but I, I, I wonder if you have a point of view about that and the, the, the analogy yeah, of music. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I totally agree with you uh, that the experience is important. Um, I still teach, and, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I teach. Uh, the last couple of years I taught a sports analytics class for undergraduates. Oh, really? Oh, I would yeah. like to take that one. Yeah, you should, yeah. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm but, into sports analytics. Right, but one of, the, one of the things you see in our class, which has been a trend over my years of teaching, mm. is towards student involvement in the actual classroom experience. Um, student involvement in the experience? What do you mean? So, in other words, instead of the students just sitting passively and hearing us talk right. we're challenging them to do right. things we're involving them in the class they mm -hmm. have to get up they have to uh, present mm -hmm. uh, on papers they have to be part of a discussion we do a right. lot more um, sort of right. Socratic method asking them questions uh, they have to be involved they right. Have to, right right because you know t today um, it's not about um, absorbing the information because I have a friend named Google's way better than I'm ever yep. going to be uh, but it is about interpreting. It is about having judgment. It is about understanding what the right questions are. Um, it's actually what I just said is one of the strongest arguments for a liberal arts education, actually, uh, even though we're not specifically talking about talking about that. Uh, but it, but it's not about quantity of information anymore. So yeah, getting that type of involvement is uh, is exactly right. right. Um, well, um, um, let's take a short break, and when we come back, I want to talk about. Uh, those 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 professors that are all over the place in universities and 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 how they think and then maybe talk to Phil a little bit more about uh, your background and uh, what got you to uh, uh, to Dartmouth in the first place. We're back with Phil Hanlon, the president of Dartmouth College. We've been talking Phil about students and about how Dartmouth accepts students, some of the technological changes going on in the uh, higher ed industry and 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 budgeting. We haven't talked as much about. Uh, about faculty members, about professors, and about kind of the innovation machine that uh, that, that faculty uh, plays such a central role in. So, um, how, how do you think about this? Yeah. So, uh, faculty obviously are our key employees um, in the sense that they're carrying out the core missions of, of teaching, learning, research at the institution. Um, they their work is all about ideas, in my mind. So it's it's really um, Ideas are what hold power in yep. the academy. That, that's in my mind. Um, so innovation, it's a messy thing. Hmm. You have to try lots of stuff. Mm -hmm. It's not efficient. You don't know what the path is from what you know now to what you want to know in the mm -hmm. future. Mm -hmm. um, you try lots of different things. And you know this, Sid, sometimes you're phenomenally successful, as with the super boss's work that you did. Um, other times you thrash around for years. And Fail, failure goes with this business, Yeah, it? <laughs> for sure. Um, I have a colleague who says the steady state for an academic is failure because as soon as you succeed, you move on to the next thing. Until and you're... don't forget the rejection rates in, in top journals, 95% right. in some of them. <laughs> right, right, right. So uh, so it is, it is an interesting business. Um, I think we all do it for the love of learning. Yeah. Yeah. And the love of discovery. Yeah. And, and, you know, yeah. to be the first person to see something, it's such a thrill. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's, that's what we all do. And, and we love telling others about it, the teaching part. Exactly. Uh, yeah. You know, um, my advisor, um, Don Hambrick, who's a professor, he was a professor at Columbia for years, and now he's at uh, Penn State, uh, a real giant in the field of, um, of, of strategic leadership, uh, he used to say, like almost every day that I'd seen, he'd say, what a, what a great day this is. Can you imagine today I woke up and I thought about what I wanted to learn, and that was my job, try to figure it out, and they pay me to do that? <laughs> and, and, and that stuck with me. I mean, I, I've yep. internalized that. And I tell people, would-be you know, academics, 
there's nothing, I mean, there's just nothing better than this. Uh, now, yeah. I understand people have different points of view, and uh, almost certainly there are some ways to make a lot more money, but, you know, that's, that's no big deal. Uh, academics can live comfortably enough, but what we get is this, 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 this world of uh, idea generation. And you know what? Failure, as we just said, you know, is a big part of it, and uh, dealing, dealing with it. You've got to get resilience, right? Some, right? some kind of skills we might teach our kids or teach students are skills that faculty members <laughs> learn one way or the other. Get up off the floor. You know, the reviews came back, and they, they, told, they, they tell you you're a total idiot. Uh, well, if you really... If you internalize that and believe that to be true, you can't get up the next day. So you just have to somehow fight through it. And at the same time, you got to listen and learn from that. It's a it's a tough it's a tough thing. Right. Um, and uh, so, do you ever get involved with or, um, research or, or innovation or ideas with not not in your own area because I know you're spending 150 percent running running the university, uh, but with other faculty members? To, to what extent do you have that type of exposure? and just kind of sitting around talking about ideas, which I know is one of the great things that all of us love to do. Right. So um, I still do a little research in my own area. Um, but uh, in terms of the institution itself and Dartmouth's future, uh, I do it a lot with faculty. I sit around and, uh, and, and my colleagues in the uh, senior administration, and, but also just uh, our, our frontline faculty who right. uh, are... Uh, have aspirations. Um, one of the favorite things that uh, we do every year is, or that I do every year is, um, I sit down with newly promoted faculty, mm. those who have just gotten tenure and are new associate professors, and then separately those who are new full professors. Right. And I say, you know, you're now the owners of this institution. Where mm. do you want it to go? Mm. What, what, what do you imagine for this place? And uh, they're fascinating that's, conversations. That, that's excellent. That's great. I remember when I, um, when I became, I think it's either when I got tenure or full professor, so it was in the late 90s, and the dean at the Tuck School at that time was Paul Danos, yes. uh, and yeah. who you know very well. And um, so he called me into his office, and, you know, congratulations, et cetera, et cetera. And, and then he said, okay, what, what are you going to do next? Like, it, it, you, you don't get tenure. A lot of people don't understand this. You don't get tenure for your past accomplishments. You get it for what you're about to do. Right. And, of course, you have to measure and assess, you know, what, what you've done to that point as an indicator of what you might do. And, and he, was, uh, he was one of the biggest reasons why I ended up shifting some of my research to, to, to address broader uh, issues of relevance in the business community, the first one being about failure and why failure happens and how to deal with it. And then more recently about talent management and leadership and super bosses, as you, meant, as you mentioned. And so I found that conversation to be a, 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 an inflection point in my career. And I had not anticipated that at all. I figured, you know, go in. Uh, That's interesting. The, uh, the faculty life cycle has relatively few markers in it. Mm. So there's two points of promotion. You may become a distinguished professor at some point. Right. I know you are, and um, but over a forty-year career, that's not very many it's markers. Not, not a lot. And so, I think that uh, what's really important is that faculty are self-motivated by right. their joy of their subject, the joy right. of learning. This is one hundred percent the case because even as you know, when you're writing a paper, I don't know what the lead time was in in math, but the lead time in in leadership and management, from when you've submitted the paper, you go through a review process, it actually comes out in. It used to be print. Now it's not right. only print. Uh, it could be, you know, it could be two, three years. Uh, so it's delayed. You're you're been you're on to five other projects by that by that point. So you have to be able to live live with that. It's a kind of an odd. I think about it as an odd business because, uh, and I know not every field is the same because some in some fields they in, in sciences certainly in in. in biochemistry or biology, you have labs and you're working with a lot of people and you're a manager. But in, in a lot of areas, humanities, social sciences, um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm, math, I'm in the social yeah, sciences, right? Yeah. right? Uh, you got to lock yourself in a room by yourself for a long time and yeah. think and write. And, and uh, that, that's not the easiest thing to do. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Uh, and it takes, it takes a lot of determination. Um, but again, I think it's the passion for learning, the passion for seeing something no one has seen before that really right. drives a lot of faculty. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so uh, let me ask you about tenure. Uh, that's another aspect of higher ed that is very odd, um, that um, after seven to 10 years, um, if you're accomplished and your colleagues around the world, 
uh, and internally in your own university think that you warrant it, you get lifetime employment. And there are not too many other fields that where that where that happens. And and tenure does a lot of things. And I under, uh, most people understand the, the the logic for it. It's supposed to protect you to go study the controversial things, study things that you, you're not you're no longer beholden to anyone else. You could pursue knowledge for the love of knowledge, and th that's that hasn't changed. That's really really important. But when you guarantee somebody a job for life, uh, sometimes that motivation level gets gets pushed um, down a little bit. And um, um, so let me ask you about, about that, because it, it, it does happen. Yeah, so uh, I'm a believer in tenure. I think that uh, it, it not only protects faculty when they want to dive into controversial things, um, it also allows them the freedom to do the, the sort of messy um, multiple-year ex explorations yeah. which yeah. may not sort of bear fruit for a long time. Right. And right. we're in a different profession. You may have said, you haven't been productive, you're gone. Right. Uh, so I think it, it allows all that. Um, it's, it is important that there still are, um, still are motivators. So um, I think the largest motivator for faculty is the uh, respect to their colleagues, mm -hmm. to be honest. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, yeah. we all grew up in that in that world, and we grew up um, wanting to uh, sort of gain the respect of our colleagues because of the intellectual work that we were able to do, and that That's remains true. the motivator uh, through through careers. There is salary, of course, as well, um, but I think for most academics, it's really the uh, it's it's really the respect it's, of their it, colleagues. It's true, but it also it also raises this um, kind of potential misalignment which is that most faculty members feel this connection to colleagues, not just your colleagues in, this, in the institution, but your community of scholars, which, are, which is a global community. And for many scholars, for many uh, professors, that's the most important, that's their identity. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, they become kind of difficult employees, <laughs> so to speak, uh, because they care more about their, I don't know, their reputation, their standing, their presence, their research, their, in, in this wider community, and maybe less about their... Um, the alignment with their institution, their wherever institution. happens to be, is yeah. a little bit is is a little bit weaker. Yeah, and that that has been many people have observed that, and I think with uh, electronic communication, the reach out to your community has strengthened, yeah. and yeah. it's yeah. become easier. I, I remember when I uh, was a young academic, I was just doing my uh, second postdoc. I was engaged in a project with a scholar in Wales, and. Mm we would, like, every three weeks, a letter would come, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it would be the next phase of that's our... How you, right. That's how you, co you, right. you communicate, yeah. yeah. Uh, so. As opposed to Slack and all these chat methods and, and yeah. uh, that, that companies use. Right, right. Yeah. Um, um, I, I, I want to I, I shift in, in a moment to um, kind of your, your early years and growing up, and, and it's, it's great, it's an interesting story, uh, but, I, but I don't think we can leave the topic of universities and without talking about one of the biggest challenges exists across the board. Uh, and it's not just about universities, it's in society, you know, the Me Too movement, sexual harassment, um, creating environments that are just not comfortable for minorities and, and for women. Yeah. Uh, and I know you've thought a lot about that, and Dartmouth is, is trying to be a, 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 almost an innovator in a positive sense in that respect. So wh wh what can you share with us on that? Yeah, so it, it is, it's a real set of issues uh, for our society in general, but uh, it certainly plays out on our campuses. Um, I can say when I arrived here uh, five and a half years ago, um, I uh, my first year heard so many heart-wrenching stories mm. about um, the the treatment that women had had, their experiences, um, or that uh, people from minority groups um, had experienced on our campus. Sorry, Phil, can I ask you, how did these come up? Somebody, because you, you, you would you'd yeah. travel, you'd meet a lot of alumni and others. Well, you know, the first year, um, I think in any job, you reach out to the community and learn a yeah, lot. Yeah. And so I had uh, a lot of conversations with students when I first arrived mm -hmm. in, in student groups. Mm -hmm. um, uh, certainly, I heard from alumni groups as well. And, uh, you know, these were these were really difficult stories. I, mm. I felt so sorry to hear that anyone in our yes. community had, had had those experiences. Um, that led to a sort of major initiative 
the first year that I was here called Moving Dartmouth Forward, right. which was really aimed at, at trying to build a safer, more inclusive um, undergraduate uh, social space. Mm. Um, so it was really aimed at undergraduates. Um, it, it was followed by something called Inclusive Excellence, which was really aimed more at diversity and inclusion. Um, and, uh, you know, very recently we, we've had a, a really difficult uh, wake-up call where we uh, had uh, f- heard allegations about three faculty members. We uh, put them on leave. We investigated them. It led to us proceeding to revoke their tenure. Right. Um, and so that... Uh, has you know really stimulated our thinking uh, about um, how we're going to address the other relationships within our community, faculty uh, with each other, faculty with staff, faculty with right. grad yep. students yep. and postdocs, um, and so there will be uh, a major initiative announced where we are looking to see how can we build a culture and climate which uh, is takes this, this additional step of trying to make sure that, that all of our departments, all of our units, all of our relationships are strong and healthy. Yeah, and it's, it's not a uh, kind of a check-the-box thing that you, we've, we, of course, we never solved the problem because yeah. people are people and they're, not everyone is a wonderful person, but it's an ongoing process. Absolutely. what you described. Yeah. When, when you were coming into Dharma, did you think that this would be a top priority ahead of time? Did you know that? Were you alerted to that? Um, I, you know... Uh, or was more kind of... Your outreach, and you kept hearing these stories, and you said, "Wow, we ha- we have to s- we have to step up here." Yeah, it, it was it was uh, probably the latter. It was it wasn't something that uh, you know uh, that I knew about before taking the job uh, explicitly. But uh, my first year um, was uh, things came to a head very rapidly. So right. uh, not only was I was I hearing so many of these uh, really difficult, heart-wrenching stories. Mm-hmm. But um, that first year, our undergraduate application numbers dropped 14% in the wake of the Rolling Stone article. Uh, we were under investigation mm-hmm. by the Department of Education. Um, and uh, so things things were happening rapidly. It was a crisis. Rapidly. It was. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was a yeah. crisis. Um, and uh, do you feel like uh, community members, alumni, are um, um, are on board with a pace of change, or are they saying? Because sometimes you ask for things, it's hard to move a ship like this. Uh, and not only that, but there there are so many individuals, and and we can't change everyone. Yeah. Uh, we just it's almost like setting in place structures, norms. And, and, and fairness and equity as much as you can. Yeah. So I, I think that most, most members of the community recognize the, uh, the actions we've taken and, the, and how broad and comprehensive they yeah. are. Um, you know, the, the, everything from uh, mandatory expulsion for students found... Uh, guilty of rape or attempted rape to the hard alcohol ban to the housing community and uh, so lots of different steps right. people recognize that um, I think there are uh, you know questions appropriate questions are about whether are we we're this is leading to enough progress and yeah. rapidly enough right and uh, particularly with um, sexual misconduct sexual assault uh, gender based harassment, as you probably know, it's it's hard to measure. Um, yeah. You know, it's very uh, sp- you know the reporting. It's the reporting something like is only much lower than than the, than the actual incidents. And yeah. so the best data we have is anonymous survey data, um, and uh, you know that we really get an opportunity every other year to do that. So it's been it's a little early to tell still. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I feel like it's the type of thing that is got to be. Um, a, a continuous process with keep keep coming up with new approaches. Communication is is critical, um, um, not just from you know leaders like like you, but um, student leaders, uh, faculty leaders as well. Uh, yeah. and, and we we are totally committed to it. Um, it's a really on the on the um, communication and knowledge front. You raised an interesting question because um, we took. A lot of the actions in the undergraduate space in 2014-15, mm. 
we now have a student body which has turned over since then. Yeah. And they forget that we did all this. Uh, this, this is so true in any organization, yeah. in, in, any, in any situation, let alone something as serious as this. Uh, it's a, it's constant communication, yeah. um, and that and what you really want is for it to somehow permeate into the DNA of an institution, the culture of an institution, so that it kind of just breathes its way and people know it. That yeah. that can take decades. Yeah. Um, um, we have that actually at Dartmouth for a variety of things that are very good things. It's 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 in the air that we breathe almost, uh, but that's not the case yet uh, when it comes to. Uh, creating a, a yeah. safe and comfortable environment for Totally for agree, but we are committed to it. We're committed to the long haul here. So uh, let's take a, one last short break with uh, President Phil Hanlon and come back and talk a little bit about his upbringing. We're back with Phil Hanlon for our last segment. Uh, Phil, let's go back to the early days. Okay. <laughs> uh, you grew up uh, in, a, uh, in a town in the, in the Adirondacks, um, small community, I guess a mining community. And what did your parents do? So, yes, I, I grew up in Governor, New York, which uh, at the time was a community of about 5,000 people. Um, the industry there was mining, talc mining mostly. Talc, yeah. as in talc, uh, so the white powder the talc. The white powder That we rock, now, which, that allegedly might be related to asbestos? Uh, yes, that's the one. Oh, my. The, the same one. And uh, and indeed, the, um, the miners there very often developed what was called white lung disease, which was a, a sort of form of... Uh, um, emphysema or something like that oh that would, yeah, was devastating to them. Um, my dad was uh, a surgeon. He was mm. the regional surgeon. Okay. And uh, he was not from that area, but you might wonder how did he get up there. Yes. And it uh, turns out that uh, the most famous resident of my hometown was Edward John Noble. And he was the guy who invented Lifesavers candy. Oh, my and, goodness. And he made a He's lot of He's responsible for several of my cavities, just so you know. Okay, good. <laughs> I uh, have... Uh, he... Uh, Made a lot of money doing that, yep. and he wanted to give back. He, he <laughs> built five hospitals in the area, and uh, he had this idea that there would be one surgeon who would go one day of the week to each of the different hospitals and do surgeries. Wow. And so he was looking for to recruit someone to do that, and he knew the Mayo brothers, and my dad was doing his surgical in residency Clinic. in the Mayo Clinic, and uh, they connected, and that's how he got up there. And the traveling surgeon bit didn't work. So my dad settled in the one town where uh, the main hospital was. Right. right. That's my that's hometown. Knowing, knowing the Mayo brothers, it makes you think we're going back to <laughs> right. you know, a long, long time ago. So, uh, so you grew up uh, there. And um, what, what was it like? I mean, it was a small town, uh, smaller yeah. than Hanover, it sounds like. Yeah. And uh, yeah, definitely it was smaller than Hanover. Um, it was, there was no movie theater, um, just to give you some context. Um, a lot of bars, but no movie theater. Uh, <laughs> was it a blue collar town? Oh, definitely very, very much. He's very, laughing. It definitely very, blue very much blue collar. Right. Um, regional high school and uh, probably less than 10% of the graduates went on to college. Less uh, than 10%. Yeah. And from those, how many went to an Ivy League school or a top school? I think I was probably the only one. In, the only one in your year or several in, years? In any year. In any year. Right. How, how did that happen? <laughs> um, you know, I, my parents were well-educated. They definitely wanted me to go uh, to college. That was never a question. Um, to be honest, they, um, they told me lots of places I should go. They gave me, you know, lots oh, of advice about okay. you should go to this place or that place or this place. And somehow they just forgot about Dartmouth. And so they never mentioned Dartmouth. And so being a stubborn 16-year-old, I, I heard the name before. I said, that's the place I want to go. Just because they didn't mention it? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so I, I got interested in visiting Dartmouth, and I did, and had one of those experiences where I, I was with my mom. I drove up the hill, saw the green, saw Baker, said, this is it. How this many is, people could share that, that yeah. experience? And so oh my. Um, I was supposed to go to Harvard for an interview the next day, and I told my mother, I'm not going. Um, you canceled the interview? Yeah, yeah. canceled it. Just but so you I, didn't know you'd get in for sure, did you? No, I did you not. No. Uh, but, but you did. I applied early decision and was fortunate enough to get in. Yeah. How do you like that? And so you, uh, you had a brother as well. Did he go to university? Yeah, I had a brother, uh, Greg, who was an older brother. Older. And uh, he... Um, he uh, had a kind of wild time in high school. His mm. grades weren't all that good, but uh, he was a great singer, got into the Oberlin Music Conservatory. Oh, which is a great, a um, which great is program. Great. Um, he, he quit that after a couple of years, moved to New York, wanted to uh, study profes with professionals there. 
Um, he became a member of the gay community in New York, and uh, sadly, he was one of the early AIDS victims. No, my. Um, but this is in the. In the. In the uh, yeah, 70s? so he was in New York in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. I think he had his first um, bout with pneumocystis pneumonia in. 1985 or something like that. Right. So, uh, and uh, he, um, with w- within our hometown, he could never come out, or with my parents even. It, he could your not. parents didn't didn't know that they their, he, their, they their did son, not know. Yeah, Greg, uh, Greg was, was gay. Right, not until he had his first attack of pneumocystis. Imagine pneumonia. how many yeah. people have to grow up that way. Yeah, even, and it was very sad. Today. Yeah, um, I certainly knew. Uh, you knew. Yeah. Did he tell you? Um, he eventually told me, but, uh, you know, by the time he told me, I said, Greg, I know that. <laughs> you know, you don't really know. <laughs> right. uh, but, uh, yeah, so uh, it was it was always very sad. And, and in fact, um, you know, I, felt, I think he never felt comfortable um, with my parents or anyone in our hometown knowing. Much more conservative environment. Yeah, it was a, a different time. It was, it, was, it was a different time. It was a different yeah. time. Um, but I, you know, I certainly learned a lot about the pain uh, imposed by biases and, you know, how, how painful that was for I, him. I could, I could yeah. imagine. Um, I mean, you don't want to learn that way, but that's, yeah. is that a story you, you share with groups occasionally? With yeah, d- yeah, definitely. It's not a, not a secret. Yeah, um, because yeah. when you have that firsthand experience in, 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 with, with something um, um, that, that difficult, that, ter- that terrible, um, it, it affects you. How could it, how could it not? Yeah. Uh, but it can also give you a lot of empathy because uh, you can understand. Yeah, you can absolutely. Understand. No, I, I, I could see his pain and, and discomfort. And, you know, what's it's also joyous to me now that there are therapies and drugs and it's not a death sentence that, anymore. Th- that's true. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very and, – and actually the um, – um, the the life of people that that, that are that are gay. There's gay marriage in many, uh, right. I think, in many states, and um, certainly it's just dramatically different in terms of the the national culture and certainly regional. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, yeah. So uh, okay, so you you saw Dartmouth, you fell in love with Dartmouth, you went yep. to Dartmouth. You were this kid from a small mining town, and you show up at Dartmouth, and did you take it by storm? Uh, no, <laughs> it was uh, you know as as well intentioned as as uh, my my high school was. Uh, the my preparation lagged seriously behind those of my classmates. So first term was really rough it academically, was. and uh, you know um, I uh, I struggled a lot, um, and uh, I was working like crazy. It just was not prepared for the challenge. And, and it was fine. I, I learned, I adjusted, I got on my feet. And mm-hmm. uh, despite a, a really um, a really poor set of grades first term, I ended up Phi Beta Kappa Summa Cum Laude by the end. So you rec- it sounded like you recovered pretty well. Recovered well, yeah. Yeah, right. but it does give you another kind of point of view of what the transition is like. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, you grew up as a son of a, of, a, of a doctor, so it's a different different environment. But there's some, we said this earlier, many kids coming to Dartmouth that they're first in generation yep. um, to go to college, and they come from small towns, rural areas, wherever they come from, or could be could be you know in, in the center of a city as well. Uh, but there's a big transition. There's a big... You know, and, and for you, was you were just describing some of the preparation because your high school maybe didn't match up some of the you right. know, top prep schools or top high schools in the country. Uh, but there's also a lifestyle. Uh, right, right. And, I had, yeah, I had, I had very little understanding of the world relative to my... Yeah. Um, yep. And so, and, and I think it's fine to, to, for there to be challenge. This is supposed to be a challenging place. Yeah. But there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and we need to be there, though, to support those who uh, who need need support, right. and make sure that uh, they grow and uh, you know have have success. You know, looking country. looking back, Phil, uh, what what changed? What uh, was just getting used to the place and gaining a little bit of confidence after kind of the rough first term? Uh, was it was there a teacher in particular that was helpful, or what 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 really changed yeah. it around? Uh, helped change it for you. So there were many faculty who were helpful, um, and uh, you know, one I'll pick out was Don Pease, who was my oh, English right. uh, yeah, yeah. professor first term, and uh, that was one of the courses I struggled with the most. And he was there constantly to try to help. And he, you know, 
I could tell he wanted me to be successful. He really cared. He that really I was cared. And, uh, yeah. and that was matched by faculty members in other, other areas too. Um, my math story is a little interesting because um, mm-hmm. I took uh, a couple of the calculus sequence courses to start with, as, you, as most students would. Um, didn't do well. Didn't like them. Huh. Uh, I was this all set. This is a math professor yeah, talking. This now. is right. So I was all set to be done with math, okay. and uh, my advisor was a math professor, and he said, "Well, try this combinatorics class. It's really different than the calculus you've had." And mm-hmm. so I did. I took it, and I was in love with it from the minute. Are you going to be able to tell us in a sentence what that means? Well, it's <laughs> uh, it's. Uh, it's structures on finite sets of objects. Well, that makes yeah. it clear for me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like counting, permutations, combinations. Okay, uh, so closer to statistics. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, okay. and discrete probability. And so. And you love that course, that one. Like, you I, I did, and, and that's what I eventually studied and became expert at. But, um, you know, that really uh, changed my whole view on, on math and really yeah. motivated me. To Interesting it. lessons. Uh, you yeah. know, struggling at first and figuring out, even struggling in, in the area that you made your career in, in yeah. those early right. calculus classes, right? right. And it's a, it's a yeah. lesson to everyone. You don't don't get discouraged, uh, you know, right away. Don't get discouraged right away. And and also the example of, um, you know, Professor Peace. And uh, um, one of the things I've always found about great teachers is they care about their students. Yeah, and that it comes across. It doesn't sound too complicated, right? Uh, no. You don't have to have, uh, you know, PA, well, you have a PhD, but you don't have to have the PhD. You don't have to be a great scholar. Actually caring about your students makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, and they know it right away. And Stu- they know Stu- it. Yeah. They, they, know it, they know it right away. You know, I was, uh, I was um, uh, reading the other day in a little bit different context that one of the most important things a doctor could do for her or his patients is to actually tell them and believe that they're going to get better. Uh-huh. Isn't that kind of... I believe that, like yeah. The simplest, yeah, yeah, the yeah. simplest thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so you really got into math because I think you were involved in some re- research as well. I was. Dartmouth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did a lot of undergraduate research, um, and in fact, had done enough so that I published three papers based on my uh, work. as an undergrad. As an undergrad, yeah. Wow. Um, and uh, and could probably one of them was a sort of major paper in a in a um, strong journal. I probably could have been a PhD thesis if I'd wanted. Two. And this is you were twenty one or whatever. Yeah, and but then I went to grad school and thought I should, I should learn something new, mm-hmm. and so I actually wrote my dissertation in number theory, which is a, a different subject. You were you were Caltech. I was at Caltech. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. So, um, at the age of of twenty twenty one, you had published three papers. One of them was a major papers you described. Um, where is, is there a thing about age and innovation? You know, it's one of those things. Everyone, everyone, the common sense is, the common knowledge is, it's not knowledge, but belief. You know, it's especially in math and physics, it's a young person's game. You know, yeah. how old was was Einstein when he came up with his, right. you know, his formulas? Right, right, right. Um, that, no. that, so that is uh, the conventional wisdom is that in uh, creative fields like pure mathematics, that you do your best work when you're young and you have some fresh set of ideas that you can apply. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, the, the Fields Medal, which is the sort of Nobel Prize in mathematics, um, is awarded for work done under age 40. So, um, And there's so, a correlation to winning the Nobel Prize in, in mathematics. There is no Nobel I'm, Prize I'm in I'm mathematics. Pause because I'm thinking, is there yeah, one? There is not How one. could there not be one? Uh, well, the, there... You know, there is this myth that it's because uh, Mittag Leffler ran off with Nobel's wife. Mittag Leffler now, that's was a, a good story. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if that's true or not, but that's, that's sort of... There's I this always myth. thought there should be a Nobel Prize in management or in leadership or something like that, but uh, no, yeah. luck, no luck there either. Math, I think I could see a stronger argument. It's hard science. Uh, so, um, uh, so you were a lifelong academic, except along the way you got into administration, and that's right. there are too many stories to, uh, to, to share about that. You were at University of Michigan for a long time. <laughs> So I have, I have two questions about being, being a president and kind of the early years. Number one, when you were at Dartmouth, did you give any thought to how the place worked? No, not really. Never. Did nope. you know the president at all? I took a class from John Kemeny was the president. Oh, it was John, with legendary yeah. John yeah. Kemeny. and he was a mathematician. Um, That's right. And I took a math class from him, but I was, uh, I was very shy as an undergraduate, and I was too shy to ever talk to him. So, Did you yep. ever? Never met him. Never met him. 
Yep. Even though he's a giant of Dartmouth. Uh, Absolutely. I'm well sure know. he was a lovely guy and would have loved <laughs> to meet me, but I just was too, right, too right, shy. Right. And, and, and then the other, the other question is, you know, you were in Michigan and you were in the faculty and then you got involved in, in administration. Uh, did you think you'd be a president of a university? Or at what Certainly point not at first, no, no. Um, and it probably wasn't until I was became provost at Michigan that I actually gave any thought. And provost is number, number two Number position. two person, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, as you said earlier, as we discussed earlier, being a professor is a great gig. I mean, that that's an <laughs> awesome job. Yes. And so I was quite happily doing that. Um, I think the, the thing that uh, led me eventually to try some administrative work was uh, my love of learning, as we discussed earlier. It was a new challenge. Yeah, a and, and I knew challenge. I knew I would learn a whole bunch of stuff. And, so. a, and a different uh, different yeah. type of challenge. Yeah. yeah, that's that's actually the best argument I think I, I've heard about why uh, someone who loves being an academic would want to go into administration. Yeah, because it, it's called management, and it's not easy, and it's different, and it's a different skill set, as you know better than anyone. Yeah, uh, which was which was great because that means that was something that I didn't know how to do, and and I'm still learning, but uh, it's. Uh, you know, just dealing with people, you don't do that a lot as a mathematician. Right. right? Uh, but it's... Right. That's oh. the lock yourself in the room thing right. that I was right. talking right. about before. Yeah. I thought it'd be fun if we did a quick word association, uh, if you're game for that. I'll try. I'll try. All right. Yeah. Just It's just, you know. Uh, well, let's start with Dartmouth. Yeah. First word that comes to mind. Dartmouth? Uh, love. All right. We should stop there. That's as good as that, uh, that answer is. Uh, mathematics? Uh, beauty. I am going to stop. I mean, love and beauty are the two answers. I can go on with some others, but that's as good as, uh, that's as, good as anything. Okay. Um, Phil Hallen, thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks, Great sir. conversation. Love talking to you. Thank you, sir.